Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, this is Adam Justice, one of the hosts of the Smart Home Show. Today, Richard and I dive in and talk a little bit about smart home companies who specialize on point solutions and those who are expanding into broader ecosystem plays. Additionally, we discuss which players in the smart home market are winning today. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the show. This is Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm joined by my co-host Adam Justice from ConnectSense. How are you doing, Adam? Doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Glad to be back with you. Kind of at the helm now, both of us at the Smart Home Show. Before we get into Smart Home Talk, though, you and I have this silly tradition that we're going to carry through where we help help our audience learn more about us by asking each other maybe offbeat questions that don't have to do with smart home. But I kind of, my mind's still on tech. Like I'm such a techie geek that I'm probably going to be asking you lots of tech related questions. So I hope you don't mind that. That's fine. If people want to suggest questions that could be asked to either of us, you can just post them on Twitter with the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard. But this one's coming from me. I'm curious, Adam, what's the first piece of consumer tech that you bought for yourself that you actually remember spending your money on? Um, this is definitely going to be a dating conversation, uh, <laughs> setting the date of when I was born. So we'll just go right out there and say it. Uh, I am a child of the 80s, born in 1983, 36 now. And so I thought long and hard about this one. And I distinctly remember that I owned and spent my own money on this piece of, we'll call it technology, called Pocket Rockers, which was a Fisher Price portable audio player that came out in wow. 1988. So I would assume wait, I bought this when I was like... Wait, you're like six? I was like five or six. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure I remember buying it at Toys R Us. And how this particular uh, awesome piece of 80s tech worked was it was, a, it was a cassette tape player for audio singles. So I was looking through the... I'm definitely going to include the link to the Wikipedia article about this thing. But uh, I definitely remember having, like, the Bangles walk like an Egyptian. Uh, definitely had some Michael Jackson, Bad and Beat It in the news, Power of Love. So there's some, uh, 
you know, Kenny Loggins' Footloose and Danger Zone. Some good, some good 80s tunes going on on this. Classic, uh, high-ranking 80s music. Actually, I'm sure I probably own all of the cuts you just mentioned. Yeah. So, I mean, this was, at least for me, predating having a Walkman or anything like that. Um, so this was kind of my first, uh, you know, introduction as a kid to having my own music. And of course, being the eighties, it was on, it was on tapes. Now, were these standard cassette tapes or were these something proprietary to that device? It was proprietary to this device. So this thing is, I don't know, maybe it's like the size of an iPhone, but, uh, you know, four times as thick and the tapes were, you know, like an inch squared or, you know, kind of a rectangle. And so it's almost kind of like, uh, you know, today's Nintendo Switch cartridges would be or whatever, but tapes. There were these little individual tapes that contained one, two songs max. And so they were all just these singles. And if you wanted a, a song, you had to get a new tape and switch them out. And so I probably had, I don't know, 10 or 15 different of these tapes until this thing, uh, you know, moved on and no longer. So it only had a a life of three years. So somewhere in the window between 88 and 91, I had this thing and amassed some collection of, uh, of singles. And then I think after that, I moved on to actually having a, a Walkman, but, um, but yeah, this was the first thing I remember that, um, was a piece of consumer technology for me. Well, the good news is that even though you don't still have that device, all you have to do now is say, hey, assistant, play Walk Like an Egyptian. And there we go. Transported back to 1988. Done. Again, as Richard said, if you want to ask a question in this section of the show, uh, post on Twitter with... Uh, hashtag ask Adam and Richard, and we'd be happy to answer your question. Now for our first discussion topic of the day, um, we wanted to talk a little bit about the smart home ecosystem and how manufacturers are kind of tackling this. You know, it feels like very early on in smart home, we had all these companies that were focused on one product. So, you know, Nest, when it launched, it was thermostat only very niche, very focused. And a lot of other companies, you know, Chamberlain with MyQ, others with, you know, cameras, and everybody just seemed very focused on their one niche product. And slowly, as things have evolved, you know, some of these players, including Nest and others, have branched out into other devices and start to do either their own ecosystems or branching out into a number of things. So kind of what sparked this for me to talk about was Ecobee, which also started as a thermostat company, Mm -hmm. uh, is now rumored to be getting into cameras. So I wanted to talk a little bit and get your thoughts, Richard, about, you know, do, do we like this? Do we like people playing outside of where they started? Um, You know, was it better when everybody just focused or, you know, is this a good thing for people to be branching out? Focused cameras. I see what you did there. I might argue that maybe Ecobee is expanding more of its Apple HomeKit footprint than necessarily strategically expanding their product line. Like I, I think it I think when they came out with 
the Ecobee 3, which was the first thermostat that worked with HomeKit, if I remember correctly. I think it was one of the original five, uh, the original five uh, product releases. And then they ended up coming out with uh, a, a switch, I believe, that also works with HomeKit, but had the Amazon Assistant on board. And they have an Amazon Assistant enabled version of the thermostat now. So it seems like they're really trying to fill needs in ecosystems. And that's kind of what's driving their expansion. And I say that because I would compare that to a company like Ring, where Ring started out with a doorbell. Actually, Ring, if you don't know the history, was originally doorbot. And that evolved into the company Ring. And Ring's mission from the beginning, when when they rebranded, was really focused around security. A ring of security initially using cameras. And they have since expanded that. And if you if you look at what they're offering, everything in their play is toward that end. So right. that seems a lot more strategic from a segment perspective. When I think these are two companies to, I guess, pair against each other well, because I think that makes total sense for Ring. And the ecosystem play for them of getting into security, other cameras, you know, even the outdoor lighting, all of it feels like a natural progression from where they started. Whereas the Ecobee thing feels a little bit weirder to me, like they're trying to play in a, a new playground that they weren't originally a part of. Yeah, I almost feel like they're doing, like Ecobee is doing more of what we see some other companies do. And often Amazon is accused of this, which is just throwing stuff at a wall and see what sticks. Although... For new product development for a relatively small company, that's a pretty risky way of doing things. I assume that they have some strategy. I don't necessarily know what it is. Like I said, I think that they're really kind of glomming on to the different ecosystems for assistance and, you know, like these larger ecosystems that Amazon and Apple are offering and building out to fill a need in those spaces, but I don't really know what their drivers are. Now, we still do have single point players, right? Like you still have single product companies or single category companies, but do you feel like the natural progression is for them to become more ecosystem plays? Like it's less of a, which is better and more of a, where are you in your life cycle kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's something that management at these companies are going to get into debates about. You know, ultimately, if you feel like you've saturated the market and you've done all you can in your in your one lane, then the next answer is to try something else. And so that may be where this is coming from with Ecobee. I think it depends on the company and their space. Um, I'll give you an example. If uh, If all of a sudden... Chamberlain MyQ said they were going to get into thermostats, that would be a little weird. You know, it's like you're, you're garage centric. 
Um, you know, I could see them doing tangential things like cameras or lighting. Kind well, of and they've su- tried to do that very thing, right? Like they came out with a really weird retrofit security kit. I, from what I understand of that, that's more of a branding partnership than them actually producing this product. But yeah, it's weird to see companies do that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good option for a company rather than try to go it alone at something like that. Find a partner that you can work with and co-brand or white label or things like that. Mm -hmm. And I'll loop back to cameras for a second. So, you know, one of the things that we do as a business is we um, help other people, you know, take on smart home projects. So this wasn't something we ended up doing, but we quoted on a project for somebody that wanted to do something with cameras. And so we went down that rabbit hole of what does it take to do a smart home camera and to do it well? And boy, is that not a simple thing to take on. Um, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, As some people who listen to me on Home On might already know, I help develop and design a third-party application product for a smart home system. And we have strategically avoided supporting their cameras because just the software side of it is complicated as heck. Yeah. Well, in the cloud, you know, that's why also all these players have a subscription model for, you know, cloud-based video and things like that because um, not only is that complex, but it's also expensive to store video in the cloud and, you know, all the things that go into that. So, um, yeah, not a simple area to to tackle. But, yeah, kind of back to the, the issue at hand, you know, I think there are going to be people that are going to do one thing really, really well and keep doing that one thing, you know, hyper-focused. And I think there's a place for that. And especially with the ecosystems we have of, you know, HomeKit, um, Amazon and Google, that those ecosystems allow you to put together kind of the best of breed items. And that's kind of the approach I've taken in my home is I'm not going off with, you know, niche stuff. I'm trying to sort of picking the best in breed in lighting, best in breed in thermostats, you know, best in breed in in locks and and letting, you know, focusing on those products that do their job really well and companies that do one thing, you know, in a really good way. So I'm curious when you're picking products, are you limiting yourself to things that work with HomeKit or are you branching out beyond that at all? So my focus has been primarily things that work with HomeKit and that work with Amazon. I've gotten in a tricky situation with a few things where, um, you know, they announced or it was rumored that they were going to do HomeKit. And so I was like, all right, that's why I ended up with a ring doorbell. Um, (laughs) Still waiting on that one. But, you know, I'm not solely doing that. And I've actually further bought in. I got a ring security system. I have their motion uh, light camera thing for the backyard. Um, So I like their products. I've invested in further stuff there, even though they haven't made good on the HomeKit promise yet. Um, But no, I want to have my options open. Uh, I want to work with at least two out of the three ecosystems. All three would be even better. 
And so, you know, I'm looking for those logos on any box of a smart home product that I'm buying. So let's look at this from our um, respective perspectives, right? As a consumer, I tend to think that if Ring comes out with, for example, security lighting like they have, then if I already trust the Ring brand, and I do, I'm probably more likely to spend money on another product that they've come out with if it meets a need for me. I think the same is probably true for the Nest brand for a lot of people and something like that. So I I can definitely see some value in it from that perspective. But I have to say, I am looking at those things from the perspective of, do I feel like this makes sense from this company? Because if it doesn't, I don't want to buy a product that they're going to brick in three years because they realized it was a bad turn for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's definitely something to think about, especially as it gets further away from a company's expertise. Um, you know, I think it's really easy to be in this space, a jack of all trades, master of none. And when you start to look at maybe the Zigbee ecosystem or the Z-Wave ecosystem, there's plenty of players, you know, kind of no-name brands that do everything and none of it particularly well. <laughs> yeah, there are. There are. Although you also still have many of your big brands who who are focused in that space, obviously, like lock makers and companies like that. And, and certainly lighting has probably been the best example of companies that, that are supporting Zigbee or what have you. But yeah, interesting. Interesting. So how about from a company perspective? I mean, it, what are the advantages of investing in a new product category? Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely something we've thought about and kind of seen where we want to go strategically. You know, obviously, at least for us as a company, anytime we want to do something, we want to do it well. Um, we want to put out a differentiated offering in the in the marketplace. Uh, you know, when we're looking at a roadmap of products we want to do, uh, I'll give you a good example is, you know, at one time in our roadmap was a light switch. Light switches got really crowded and I didn't feel like there was anything we could do that would be better, faster, cheaper, unique in that space. And so, you know, to make that investment and go up against Lutron and Leviton and, you know, some of those huge players just made no financial sense. So, I mean, I think mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of the equation you have to do when you're looking at your roadmap and what you want to take on is like, does this make sense for us? Is this a natural progression for our brand? And can we do this well and differentiated? Okay. That makes sense. Is it, do you feel like, there are clear paths where the the risks would be outweighed by the advantages if you selected properly, or is it just safer and ultimately better to 
focus in one category or does it depend? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends and it depends on, you know, what your R&D budget is. What if you're willing to you brought up Amazon and they're willing to kind of throw things up against the wall and see what sticks. Uh, you know, we don't have a budget to throw things up against the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> you know, maybe Ecobee does, and and they're you know they're doing you know we can we can risk this, and you know the brand can survive it, and the you know the advantage of um, finding another successful product category for us is worth more than you know the possible you know damage to the brand or investment loss in a new product category. So, yeah, I mean, I think. It, it it really is going to depend on your company, your resources, and, and where you want to go. Now, I would say that this doesn't mean that I'm not going to buy a one-off product from a company, right? Like if there's something out that's compelling and there's something that I feel has some legs to it where it'll be around for a while, then sure, I'll probably try a one-off product. I mean, and Ring's a good example of that. Now, I had an unfair advantage there in that I reviewed the Ring, and while I was reviewing it, I liked it so much, I went out and bought myself one. Not everybody gets that kind of hands-on experience. Get to try for free and then then buy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it also depends on, you know, how much, you know, what's the investment and setup to... Uh, to test something like I don't think I would, you know, I would test a one-off light switch when I'm pretty well invested in Lutron already, and then all of a sudden I have this one, you know, rogue light switch that doesn't look like the rest, and you know, things like that. So, you know, I think it depends on the product. If it's something that's pretty easy and DIY and isn't going to stay in the wall and things like that, like a light bulb. I tested all kinds of light bulbs from different people and I'm willing to branch out a little bit more there. But I mean, that's another good example of like hard to differentiate in light bulbs. And ultimately it kind of became about what's stable and what's affordable. Yeah. And I think that differentiation really is key there. Do you really want to expand from where you are into, like you were saying earlier, a category that's become commoditized. That's the thing that's probably probably requires a lot of analysis and math to figure out if you're going to be adding something new or different. Exactly. All right. Well, we'll be back in just a minute for our second conversation here. But before we do that, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. All right, Adam. For our second discussion, we wanted to tackle this concept of who's winning the smart home, right? Like we see so much stuff finally happening for years and years and years. The smart home is here. The smart home is here. I would argue that we're definitely seeing a greater number of products come out now, probably more like what we expected maybe three or four years ago. And so that's good news. But then with all of these different companies in the mix, from startups to companies that didn't previously do smart home stuff, like Chamberlain, to people that are from companies, I say people, but I really mean companies, that 
are, are these big, just Goliath companies that have pushed their way into the space, like Amazon and Apple and Google. Who's winning? Is it the big companies or the little companies? Does everybody win? You know, rising tide. Who do? You, what do you think is like kind of the name that people think of as? Oh, smart home. Yeah, you should try this pro this company's products or this product. Yeah, I mean, if I, if you forced me to pick one, I would probably pick Amazon. Um, early on, I was a, wow. Yeah, I mean, I I was a I was a hundred dollar Echo device, and uh, my early review of that hundred dollar echo which if you don't know when they first released the echo it's available to select prime customers if you got your name drawn out of a hat at i don't know half price what that device originally went for yeah i was gonna say it was not a hundred dollars for actual consumers right. yeah it was like <laughs> pay a hundred dollars to be a beta customer and my early review of that device was this is the best kitchen timer that a hundred dollars can buy. <laughs> uh, and it was kind of true. It, it didn't do a lot. Uh, it was kind of interesting, but you know, as we talked about with Amazon, they just keep throwing more against the wall and seeing what sticks. And, uh, you know, the numbers they've released, I don't know any of them off the top of my head, but they're selling a ton of echo devices. And, you know, the last couple holiday seasons, they have just been totally dominant and then some of the acquisitions they picked up, uh, like Ring, I think just make them even stronger in the smart home space. So from an ecosystem perspective, I, I definitely think they're one of the dominant players here. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think I would have answered that question myself with two companies. I think Nest and Ring are probably the two companies that I would have mentioned. And how cool is that? Because they're startups that, oh, right, that were each bought for lots and lots of money and are now part of the, you know, GAFA or GAFM or whatever acronym you want to use for the big companies involved in this space. Which, again, that stands for? Uh, so, <laughs> different way of looking at this, but... Uh, it's it's usually GAFA would be Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. GAFM is usually Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft. Facebook, notice Facebook is still there. Recently, we learned that Facebook is actually doing R&D on a voice assistant. <laughs> that scares the crap out of me. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, I think... We also have stories about their family hub camera thing. I mean, they're, they're, you know, shelves full of these things. I don't know who's buying them. I wouldn't trust having one in my, my home. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't trust Facebook and stuff like this. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. But you know, the, the point being that these big companies have kind of come in and and not necessarily taken over the space, but I would argue that they're now driving the space because if you are a small company that gets into this, kind of like we were talking in the last episode, you want to support 
those companies' ecosystems. Because that's what is kind of popular and what people are using and what has the mind share right. of consumers. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I definitely agree with you on the on the on the ring section. Uh, I mean, I think they've just been dominant and continue to keep their foot on the gas, reinvesting. Um, you know, had a little legal blip with their. Uh, with their security system. Uh, but I actually just recently put that in my house. It's a nice product. Um, and you know, they offer some pretty unique stuff there. And, um, you know, they acquired your, your outdoor lighting company you really liked as well. So I know that's a product you're, you're excited mm-hmm. about Mr. That coming out from them eventually. So I think, you know, I, I think it's interesting because those are companies that I thought were doing well before. I still think they're doing well, even now that they're part of these larger ecosystems. I would probably name them before I name the parent companies, because I kind of feel like I still don't know the motivation of the parent companies. And while I don't believe that Google is going to drop the ball on their involvement in smart home. I don't trust Google to stay in anything. We talked about yeah. that a little bit before too. So, so I, I don't. I definitely wouldn't be naming them, but I still think of Nest as something that's really interesting and value added, value adding for consumers. Now, the question that I have is: so, if you look at things that are successful, you look at companies or products that are successful. Is there a common thread? Like, is there something that they seem to be doing right that is giving them this kind of mind share or hmm. this winning position? That's a great question. I mean, I would say, especially for the example you gave, uh, you know, focusing on key products and doing it really, really well. I, I would say, you know, Nest. Uh, with their thermostat initially, you know, was very focused and, you know, was far ahead of everybody else. And, you know, I think there were a couple players in the doorbell space um, and Ring did it really well. But the thing that they did so much better than everybody else was marketing. Their marketing and message and mm. all of that is what set them apart from the other players in the doorbell space. That's a really good point. I might add that I think both of those companies, for the most part, have a very good industrial design approach. I think their physical design of product is fairly consistent, very refined, and they're trying to think about how these products work and live and look in the spaces where they'll be. Yeah. And I'm not convinced that everybody's as good as that or everybody is as good at that. And I'm thinking, for example, of Amazon's first effort to put a screen on their assistant and, uh, you know, I think when Google came out with the original Google Home, it was a weird looking thing. I still don't like it. 
I don't know anybody that has. That's not true. I know one person who has one. You may have one. Maybe I know two people. I I do have one. Okay. Yep. I, I'm only really interested in the mini devices because they're less obtrusive. Like, why does it need to take so much space if it's not actually performing a function? Like, for example, the hub that we talked about. Yeah, I I don't know. I think I think design has a lot to do with it. The, the experience that they're offering people, and I kind of lump that into industrial design as well, thinking through the experience design of things. But I think experience is still tricky on the software side. Like, I'm not convinced that I will go so far as to say, I don't think there is one company out there yet that I am fully satisfied with their software experience for smart home products. Not one. Maybe, maybe the closest is Apple yeah. with Apple Home. I mean, even that's hard because they don't own the full experience and... right can't always so there's still things you can't do in their app you can't update firmware sometimes you can't do setup and you know it, it can be limiting I, I would say they probably offer the best general experience across different products but yeah i mean i would agree with you it's it's something where there's uh there's definitely room to grow uh and room for people to do it better yeah yeah i would agree I want to go back to Nest for a minute because uh, you name them as as somebody you think is is winning. I feel like I don't fully disagree with you on that. I think they've come a long way, but I pulled my Nest thermostats, and I was a super early fan of Nest and all aboard. I, I would say their product is probably what helped get me excited about this space you know, a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. But then I kind of feel like they lost their way a little bit. Um, as a company... Oh, they did. Absolutely. They stalled. Yeah. I mean, I think some of that was they were focused on things like um, Thread and, you know, doing everything, you know, the way they wanted to and, and stuff like that. Whereas I think if they would have just focused on the products and continuing to move it forward... Um, maybe some of these other dominant players like Ecobee, um, you wouldn't have even had a chance to catch up to them. Um, Hmm. but you know, uh, and there were other motivations to me pulling my, my nests out of my house, like the fact that they didn't support HomeKit and I didn't think they ever would. Maybe that'll come someday. But, you know, I just generally felt at that time too, like they weren't doing anything new and exciting with their products. And it, it, like you said, it kind of stalled out. It did. It absolutely did. But then I think they kind of picked up again when they came out with the Nest doorbell and when they came out with the Nest security system. They went in directions that I don't think people expected them to go. And from... Most of what I hear, consumers who have those products tend to like them. I don't have either of those products, but I understand that they're 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 good products and that the ecosystem that they work with is good. And so I still think that they have a lot of potential and they could do some really cool things. They had a rough period where they just weren't 
getting product out and they right. weren't innovating. And that's troublesome, but the good news is they rectified that by getting somebody in there that could kick the company back into action. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that was just internal politics and they tried to do too much once they became part of Google and Google trying to figure out what it was going to do and, and all that. So that I agree. It feels like they've righted the ship. And um, I think some of their advantages with the product like their cameras and their doorbell come from things that Google's really good at. Yep. Like that product has some advantages in its machine learning and AI type stuff that definitely come from their parent. Absolutely. And that your contact information is probably already in Google. And so like all of these things that Google's Google helps pull together for Nest, that frankly, is Nest's unfair advantage, which is what you want as a company. Hopefully they learn their lesson about not secretly uh, shipping microphones and products without telling people uh, anymore. Yeah, I agree. Although I feel like that was yet another overhyped issue, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, uh, for anybody who's not familiar, uh, they had shipped the ability to have the Google Assistant in their uh, their security system when it launched, but the, it needed a firmware update to do that. And I actually thought I remembered hearing that in advance or knowing that in advance, but obviously it wasn't a loud enough announcement. And so some people were pretty troubled by the fact that they later found out there was a microphone from Google in their security system. And I think understandably so. They should have been more transparent about that. I also find it hard to believe that nobody, nobody did a teardown that got some documentation. Come on. Yeah. Where where were you on that one? I fix it. <laughs> well, it doesn't work with the eye things. So. Yeah, true. Exactly. That's what they were doing. They were tearing apart iPhones. Exactly. Well, and um, Samsung phone. Oh, never yeah, mind. Exactly. They're not talking about that anymore. All right. Any other thoughts here on people that are, you think are really doing well and succeeding in this space? So there's one point that I want to add here that I I feel like I'm going to be going to the dark place right now. But it's it seems like both of these companies are companies that were initially, maybe not initially, but pretty early on were flush with investment cash. And so it makes me think that I think is the wrong way. I don't want to conclude this, but it makes me wonder, is this sort of success really dependent on capital? In other words, as a startup coming in, where you're just coming in with product and maybe you don't have investors and and you're not trying to get the big buyout or something, do you have a chance to compete? And I hate to put that in your head, Adam, but, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's something that I think about and it, it's something that I honestly worry about because I think that there's a lot of opportunity here and I would hate to see the small guy get crushed by the folks who have 
the contacts on Sand Hill Road to get investment funds or potentially get an exit from one of right. the GAFM companies? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair question. And, you know, I guess our perspective is we've always been bootstrapped and, uh, you know, Connexence is lucky to be part of a, a bigger company, which is called Grid Connect, and that's how kind of fund some of our activities and things like that. So for me, I've elected to not go that route. And some of that is just, you know, lessons from my dad, who was always an entrepreneur and always kind of went about it, the bootstrap route and I don't know, just kind of how I raised. And I, I never liked the idea of having to answer to somebody else about, you know, what we're going to do. But you're right that there are some inherent advantages that come from that. And you know, you're able to further leverage with other people's money. I think the the counter argument also, though, is for me, and, and one of the reasons why I've avoided that at times is that can also be a distraction, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to go off and, and raise a bunch of money or focus on that. And for me, I always wanted to focus on the product, the experience, things like that. I didn't want to take my hands off of that wheel to go run around and, and find some money and then have somebody to answer to and, and ultimately lose control. And I've seen, you know, we've obviously seen successful stories and, and some of the companies we mentioned, like Nast and Ring, were, were obviously venture funded and, and raised that way. Others like August and things like that that have had successful exits. So, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it, it all depends on what your goals are and what your trying to do as a business and if you can be successful on the resources you have and it's different models of of doing business for sure yep all right so now moving on we're going to enter our q a section of our show um if you'd like to send a question for this section of the show uh just tweet with the hashtag ask smart home show we'll pick that up and you may see your question answered in this show uh as we've been getting started here Um, We also asked some questions of friends in in various smart home places that Richard and I hang out. And one of those is a great HomeKit Slack, um, which I'll post the link for joining that if you're interested. Um, So I I posted out there and asked for questions. And Mark from France asked, what's the ETA for Bluetooth mesh repeaters for regular people? I love this question. So I have a, an answer here, and I'll, I'll let you weigh in as well, Richard. But I think BLE Mesh is here. Last year, the Bluetooth SIG released their official standard you know, Bluetooth SIG blessed um, spec for BLE Mesh. Previously, there were a bunch of companies that were doing BLE Mesh, but it was all proprietary. So very um, segmented to that brand only. But that to say... BLE Mesh is still very, very young. And I think the thing to think about here uh, for Mark and others that are really interested in BLE Mesh is that BLE and Bluetooth in general is a network protocol. Um, So it solves a network and networking related thing. It isn't necessarily a application layer protocol for handling integrations and things like that. So what complicates this answer is that you could make a standard BLE 
hub or repeater. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily solve everybody's problems because in what I've seen in this space is everybody is communicating differently um, on the BLE layer of software such that it would be hard for somebody to come out and put out a generic BLE device that would solve this problem magically for everybody. Wah, wah. I know that's a tough answer for right now, but you know, I think there, there's still promise there, but what I'm trying to say is we need to solve more problems at other layers of this before it can get there. So there needs to be a standard, uh, application layer solution as well. Um, to talk on on BLE mesh. Yeah. Bluetooth is very, very frustrating to me for many reasons. First was the whole thing where the industry got ahead of the spec, and so everybody did their own thing. And now we're in this weird period where companies have to figure out if they're going to invest in retrofitting to the standard, if they even can, because not everybody's proprietary thing is really going to work the way the standard is spec'd now or the specification, not a standard, but I excuse my uh, word tripping there. But I, I also have a hard time understanding how the technology that manages to connect any phone to nearly any speaker and any car and pass metadata and let you control that stuff, which obviously means that there is a protocol for specific capabilities associated with those profiles that enable that. Why a similar structure doesn't exist that would allow interoperability between like products in the smart home space. And it just drives me crazy that a Bluetooth switch from one company can't operate a Bluetooth something from some other company. It's just not designed to work that way. And I think that that is going to be a hard thing for consumers to understand. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I've always maintained that I like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi because they're the technologies that are in this thing um, and are the technologies that consumers are most. And I just, for the audio listeners, you know, we're doing <laughs> video too. I held up my iPhone. Um those are the co the technologies that consumers are most, you know, uh, they understand, they're the most familiar with, and so that's the easiest path for them sometimes to associate with things. So I think it's unfortunate for now. Uh, there's probably more proprietary hubs and repeaters before there will be less, but I think it's still possible in time that um, we'll see some standardization there. I seriously hope so. All right. So if you have a smart home question for us, you can send it our way using the hashtag AskSmartHomeShow. Just use that in Twitter and we will consider those for future episodes.
All right. Now that wraps up our episode today. Richard, tell people where they can find you on the internet. So first off, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I am the editor of the Digital Media Zone. And there, in addition to some writing, I host Home On, which is a podcast specifically about DIY smart home technology. So you can check that out in any of the usual places. And if you want to reach out to me on social, Twitter is the best place to do that. And I have many, many places, <laughs> many faces, many names on Twitter. But the one that I am uh, most responsive to is the one that's just my name, Richard Gunther on Twitter. And uh, how about you, Adam? Uh, you can find me on Twitter as well, at Adam Justice, and uh, also everything we're doing uh, at ConnectSense at ConnectSense.com. And then, of course, you can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts of various apps. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm.